Welcome to the IOTICS Podcast, where we're talking to inspiring humans who are not just doing things differently, but doing different things to make their world, and by extension ours, a better place. We'll explore how they are bringing people and technology together to solve complex challenges today. I'm delighted to say that our guest on this week's episode is Eric Applewhite. He's a director at Deloitte, leading the Northern Data Capability. Eric's had a fascinating career, covering Canada, New Zealand, New York City, Hong Kong, always looking at people and technology, the public sector, how we better look after our individuals and deliver better outcomes. I found this conversation both incredibly uplifting and really, really insightful about how the social contract is changing in data and digital, how we really need to focus on our data self, how we interact with others, how we interact with society, how we interact with industry, and balancing the triumvirate of value, risk, and education. Eric's a brilliant human who's been doing brilliant stuff, but listening to him talk about the potential, the opportunity, and his hope for all of society, I can't help but feel that the future's in safe hands. Welcome to the Artics Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you're currently leading the uh, Northern Data Capability for Deloitte. Yes. But you've worked all over the world, Canada, New Zealand, uh, New York City, Hong Kong. Yep. Uh, a- a- any others? Have we, ca- have we caught the highlights? Uh, those are probably the highlights, <laughs> yeah. but it's been, a, it's been an amazing career. It really has. And if I may, a kind of through line, it seems to be, is, is kind of people and technology. Yes. And you mentioned briefly to me about the public sector and your work in New York City. Can yeah. you just tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, my work in New York City was really where I think, for me, data came alive in terms of its possibility and, and what it could do. And I, it's there that I learned that that being at the center of data problems and data solutions keeps you at the center of people and places. You know, it's not so much about the bits and bytes, although that can be cool too. What I love is what data tells you. And, um, you know, I was working on a project in the city and the vision was to unite the health and social care domain. So, you know, a really big place, 13 million or so people in New York City metro. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about and I learned there is is the power of holistic view. Um, and the problem that they essentially were trying to solve, and I saw a really powerful conversation between a, a visionary deputy mayor and, and uh, Mayor Bloomberg at the time. And it was around, unless we bring our data together, about the people that we're trying to serve and help, we shouldn't expect any better human outcomes for them or service outcomes for us in terms of efficiency. And this idea that we're trapped in the world, certainly of public services, of of looking at a shattered mirror is the analogy that I use and picking up pieces of that mirror and, and trying to then get the insight that we need. Um, there's a reason we don't, we don't use broken mirrors <laughs> in our real lives, right? It, it, it doesn't give us the whole view that we want, and it's a little bit dangerous. And I would say our fragmented world of data, um, you know, there's a real parallel there. And um, I saw that project make a real difference. I'd say most data projects are imperfectly successful, but we should take that, you know? And um, I suppose the moment I knew that it was working was um, 
a call that came through after, you know, the hard graft of trying to join up those systems and, you know, the, the kind of pain of that. Uh, somebody phoned in and said, I live in a in a building in New York City. It's a pre-war building, so no elevator. And I, there's an elderly woman who lives on my floor. And um, it's extremely hot. It's August in New York City. And I'm worried that she's not eating. And I'm worried that she's at risk because of the heat. And this customer service worker that had no particular kind of social care training or anything was able to use the holistic data to find out who she was, uh, to smatch emergency meals on wheels and an assessment to make sure she was okay and locate her relations in the city so that, you know, they could come and check on her and make sure that she was okay. And it was a really, I suppose, an existential moment for me because you, you, you do the process flows, you do the technical integration, you do the engagement, and then you have a moment where you see the human impact yeah, and you realize this is the place I want to be. This, this is, this is my career. This is what I'm doing from now on. And that was the moment for me. How do I bring and how do we bring increasingly fragmented, but very valuable pieces of data together so that we can see people in the whole, so that we can see services in the whole, so that we can make better decisions about what to do and what order to do them. Um, I've just never looked back. That's incredible. And it, and, the fact that by bringing it in the whole, you're really looking at what good looks like rather than crudely digitizing a service. Right. So so the digitizing service is, well, how do we deal with people living at home? How do we deal with health issues? How do we deal with social? As opposed to well, the outcome we want is presumably people being happy and healthier at home yeah. for longer or, or yeah. whatever else it might be. Yeah, absolutely. And we're we're the sum of our parts, you know, we're not any one piece of glass, you know, when we take a look at ourselves and it might be in the context of employment or a health issue or a carer issue. And if we try to look at just one aspect of a person that we're trying to help in care or whatever it might be, we're really at risk of, of doing potentially the wrong things in the wrong order for them because of the inner relationship of, of their whole, if that makes any sense. And, um, you know, the, what's great now is it's really data's time. I think there's a real acknowledgement different than when I was in New York City kind of, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Digital was barely a word. It was a new word. Um, now people acknowledge that data is important. And I think a kind of question for our time is how do we use data for good and protect, I suppose, our, our privacy and, and how do we get that, that balance right? So not easy, but a really exciting time to be uh, somebody working in the field of data. One of the things that I've seen you uh, talk about is to crudely boil it down. Whose data is it? Yeah. So, so yeah. the the data self, I'm yeah. moving through space and time. I'm interacting in all these ways. I have all these facets yep. um, that were previously sharded in the broken mirror mm -hmm. uh, analogy. Um, so it isn't just the digitizing of dysfunction. You know, this is how an industry currently works or a service provider works, but actually who owns that data and the nature of the data relationship seems to me to be up for grabs at the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think it's a settled discussion. It isn't at all. And it's, uh, you know, uh, the Wild West, I would say. And I think, you know, we, we don't realize how much data that's out there about us, data that can be accessed by people maybe that we want to access or don't, don't want to access. So there's this kind of sovereignty, I suppose, or ownership of data um, that I think so critical. And I do think I probably use this word a lot, but there is an existential thing I think that's happening to us right now. And and that's the 
may, you can call it the divide or the coming together of the physical self that we're used to and the digital self. So, so many of us spend so much time online, recreationally in our work, um, that we're, we're interacting almost as an entity in terms of our data and what we do. And we see things happening in our society that play that out. You see, you know, internet gaming addition, addictions. You see the emoji movie. You see the kind of pop culture aspects of data in our lives. And um, if, if there's one thing uh, apart from, you know, using data to serve people holistically, um, it, it's us getting to grips with our data self and how to manage that and how to maintain control of ourselves in a digital world described by data to access services, to not access services, but to make sure that the choice and the sovereignty is ours. And, and that is an emerging and growing conversation. It's happening now. Um, and there isn't a perfect answer yet, but I think all of us, if there was kind of a wish that I had, it would be to pay more attention to our data self and realize how valuable that is um, and how it can be used for good in your own self-interest and actually how it can be abused if you don't keep an eye on it. And that seems to me then, if we're, if we're drawing this parallel of the data self and the digital existence, that you also need, to your existential point, a redrawing of the the nature of social contracts or the fair value. I mean, we've, we've had, um, well, really since the, the Industrial Revolution, a kind of our form of social contract, and that, yep. that varies geographically, and I'm interested in your yeah. experiences of that, but you've had our nature of how you, the state, private enterprise, will interact and, and what, yeah. what that looks like. As we start to get to grips with our own data self, we're redrawing those social contracts, yeah. at least in a data space or data or digital space. Absolutely, and I think the, the sharing of data, is it really it comes for me, a trust brand. It really is about trust. It's about my ownership of the data, trusting those that I allow to access that data to do what I give them permission to do and, and not do you know, what I ask them not to do. Um, there is a redrawing and, and it, it varies. I think in the West, you know, my experience having done some work in the Far East and some work here is there are de very different attitudes to data um, and information. And there are very different attitudes to society and the idea that I'm, you know, you contribute to society. Of course, I'm going to use your data for kind of whatever purpose. Whereas I think in, in for, for good normally, right? But I think in the West, we have a balance. We have this constant dialogue, which is right, between privacy and self-interest and altruism and using data to benefit not just ourselves, but the lives of others. And, um, you know, we can get some really profound insights, I think, by using one another's data in a population health context or whatever it might be, as long as it's anonymized. And, um, you know, again, one of the things that I, I thought was interesting when I was in New York was around uh, collaboration between health and social care and the bringing together of data at a population health level to learn that in times of extreme heat and cold, a local council could buy an air conditioner for an individual for, call it 400 pounds, and that could prevent an A&E visit that would cost 7,000, 8,000 pounds and potentially, you know, have drastic or even fatal con consequences for a human life. So the kind of value that you can get, I think, is is incredible. But there there are dangers, too. I mean, I'm a, you know, personal story, but I... Um, you know, being American, these kind of who do you think you are genetics, you know, yeah. like how much Neanderthal do I have in me? You know, what, what can I learn about my ancestry? I was really anxious to do this um, for my family, particularly because my wife is very fond of saying I'm just British. But when you think about the Vikings and the Romans, there's no such thing as, yeah. as just British, right? Um, so I was seconds away from pushing the button and I just happened to look and there was a kind of 
national lawsuit happening between this this company and uh, the Department of Justice in the U.S. because there were no protections around the genetic data that was being harvested. It could be used by that company for anything. Um, and the kind of doomsday scenarios are, you know, being sold to insurance companies to control the cost of your premiums based on your genetic risk and all of that. Those are the types of things people worry about, right? But I was, I guess my point is I was split seconds away from giving away my son's entire genetic future with yeah. no protections at all. And it was it was a kind of terrifying, again, another existential moment. That's all fixed now, by the way, in terms of, of protection and the societal debate has kind of fixed that issue that for these companies normally when we give our data away, we are protected. But at that time, it wasn't rock solid enough. But I, I think that's so interesting that, um, you know, one of the things that we think about a lot at IOTICS is about the temporal nature. You know, so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, can you share or do things either contextually for a reason or under a temporal basis or yeah. you know, kind of in, in case of emergency break glass basis. Mm -hmm. But I remember uh, we were doing some work with an organization called My Smarter Essex, right. um, which was a fantastic initiative working with school children and, and looking at stuff. And, and there we were theorizing with 16, 17 year olds, um, mm -hmm. talking about data issues and so on. And, and one of the questions was, would you share information about your personal health yeah. Exactly as you say, anonymized for research and development processes. Yes, absolutely. Would you share it with an insurance company in order to uh, gain lower premiums or access to inf uh, yeah, access yeah. to services or so on? And what I was struck by was relatively young individuals coming back and saying, absolutely not, because I know I'm going to make bad choices and yeah. I shouldn't be punished in perpetuity for yeah. having a wild late teens or early 20s. Yeah. And in the same way that we're redrawing the social contract, historically, you could reinvent yourself yeah. relatively e easily, you know, in, t in terms of, oh, no, I'm now a clean living, you know, like, <laughs> good, yeah. good bill of health. Look, I'm a, I'm a fine, upstanding citizen. Let me remove this this history yeah. behind me. Yeah. And now we see it socially with digital photography and so on. Yeah. But but this data self, actually, that mm. if that exists in perpetuity yeah. and you give up control of it somehow. Yeah. You, know, you are talking decades hence that there might be this digital footprint of Absolutely. yeah, but look at you when when you were in the late twenties. Yeah, well, and it, and it's always there. You know, there'll be a kind of archaeology that's your history, <laughs> and and as you say, some of that history you might you might not want to be known or, or celebrated. You know, we all we all misstep, don't we? So, a really interesting time, I think. So, and and I don't know quite how we're going to redraw the social contract. I think to your point. You know, here in the UK, we have the common law duty of confidentiality. So it's more than just our legislation and GDPR. There is this idea that our societal perceptions about data and the use of data matter in terms of how it's allowed to be used. And um, they did a really cool thing um, in the University of Manchester. They used this grassroots um, debating technique called citizen juries that started in the US to debate. Uh, really contentious societal issues. And it's just like it sounds. They bring kind of 12 citizens together from all walks of life and they're presented for and against in a particular social case. So not a huge sample size. But what I thought was really powerful about the citizen jury work on data sharing in Manchester is, um, you know, my, from recollection, they ran it twice and it showed when presented for and against the case for data sharing, there was a gradual shift towards more comfort in sharing, particularly when... Uh, you had appropriate controls to anonymize data and protect people's identity. Generally, people were happier to share from an altruistic perspective their data if it would help prevent cancer. Yep. 
and, and those kind of things, but not happy to have their data shared with the private sector in general, even if that sharing was commoditized, even if they received something for it. So I think what you saw in Essex very much played out in the, in the citizen jury work too. And I guess if I would say one thing, maybe those that look after us, and I'm a huge, a huge fan of, of the ICO and, and call to call guardians and all of that, but I think in terms of the data self, there's just never going to be enough of them to protect us, mm-hmm. although I'm grateful that they're out there protecting us, so grateful. I just think from a budget and policy perspective, I would like them to shift more towards educating us on how to manage our data selves ourselves because I think that's about the only way we can be made safe. And you can ask who will care, you know, will my my 80-year-old mother care? You know, maybe not. But I think um, increasingly we will care because we're in this world of our digital self. So let's see what happens to us existentially. I think that element of, and, and I'll dig a bit deeper into your comments about trust in a minute, but yeah. just to, to keep on the data self, I think one of the things that I'm seeing increasingly being talked about and I'm interested in your reflections on is is actually the nature of ownership. So rather mm-hmm. than relying on the ICO and others to say, yeah. I have given up, albeit contractually and educated yeah. and so on, but this service provider now owns my data and, and I'll have the relationship this way, yeah. to instead say, it's my information, it's myself, yeah. I will negotiate through time yeah. with what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and who has permission and access and so on. Right. And I will I will have the control to revoke that access if I feel for any reason yeah. I don't, I don't trust them or I, I don't yeah. feel they're doing the right thing. Yeah. And that, again, seems like a shift. And actually a shift back, let's be honest now, to how we interact in the real world. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't generally go into a shop and then agree that I will always be in that shop and they, they yeah. retain. You know, um, I choose where I go and how I do and what I interact with at point in time. Absolutely. Does that is that reflective for you on, on kind of potential direction of travel? Yeah, I think so. When you when you look at the kind of things that establish trust. Right. So eventually, so you, so you have to know that the data you share is going to be shared accurately and in a timely way. People generally look for that. That's a basic expectation. But they look for auditability. They look for lineage and transparency. So they want to be able to understand that what they expected to be shared was shared and how and when. Even if they never look at it, they need to know that that's there. And that's one of the kind of aspects of trust brand. And the other thing is they need to be able to turn it off if they change their mind. That's, that's, our, that's our sovereignty. That's our Western right to privacy and, and ourselves, whether it's a physical self or a data self. You know, we, I think we would say in the West broadly, we have the right to stop things that, that we don't like. Yep. And, and I think you'll see our value and culture try to sustain that, albeit in a really difficult and interesting circumstance in this digital world. I think you'll see that conversation play out and, and those kind of self-advocacy, self-ownership type of controls and processes become more and more common such that maybe in a, in a generation or so, you know, my son's children or maybe even him, um, it'll just be common for them. You know, maybe, I think I was saying this to you the other day, you know, see if you believe in this vision, you know, in 10 years time, in 15 years time, it will be as common for someone to look on their phone and look at the health and what's happening with their data self and making some choices about it as it is to look at your online banking app today. You know, how many times if you do online banking, do you look at that? Is it weekly? Is it daily? Um, I think our future around our data self is, is going to resemble that. That's my view. I love that as a comparison, as an analogy, because, you know, I, I just personal story, reflect on my wife and I, my wife with her banking apps yeah. is, is on it. Um, and she, derives comfort from 
proactively going in and checking regularly. Whereas my behavior is I'm reactive. So I get the notifications and basically if they come in and I get one that I wasn't expecting, I might look at it. But in general, my assumption is you're broadcasting to me and I'll be able to work out where the errors are. Yeah. But that idea that it, that's then up to you, how you look at your day self and check in. And there will be those that want to check in and monitor and there will be those that are yeah. reactive or prompted and saying, oh, you know, a new share has happened or a new, a new activity has happened. That's right. And I think I think that's good. You know, because people will take different views. I think it will be – I think increasingly it's easier to go into the digital world and stay there. You know, I don't know how many of us get the shakes. It doesn't sound like you're like this, Ali, but like I got to check my phone in case something's <laughs> changed. Yeah. You know, there's a, there is a little bit of that. So I think, you know, there will be balance for us and whether we're prompted or whether we're checking ourselves. But it should be a choice I think is the point. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting question um, around sovereignty and, and having control of our data self is we're going to need help. You know, there is going to be a kind of brokering thing that needs to happen in terms of technology and helping us make that choice. And I think it will be really interesting to see, I don't know myself, who the major players will be. You know, you could be a cynic to your point and say, well, the folks that have our data now, these huge companies, you know, maybe will, you know, they've already won the day. You know, what is government's place? What is our own place? Um, But I think this idea of who our, our data brokers and facilitators will be is, is an interesting one. I don't quite know how it's going to play out. My personal feeling is that it can't be the people who have it now. I agree. Yeah. Unless there is adaptation in how they are behaving. Yeah. Because we, yeah, yeah. I think we have seen in the same way that we saw uh, like Apple icons were um, pictorial references to physical media. And yeah. then you had a new generation going, what is this weird... Flat is, oh, it's a floppy disk. Yeah. How does a floppy disk? And it's like, it's like why, why is yeah. this a symbol for save? It's like, well, because we used to save to physical media. It's like, none of this is relevant to yeah. me. Let's, re, let's redraw it. Yeah. Um, in, in the same way, I think we're going to see a redrawing of those lines about what it means to share and cooperate and, and so on and not have fixed integrations and fixed codes of practice because yeah. – I also see, and I've seen from your career, and in fact, even in the example you used from New York City, this this shift towards outcome-based rather than task-based. Yes. And I think there are a lot of companies that are structured currently on a task-based. Yeah. We will deliver these checkboxes and you will mm-hmm. do these checkboxes things. Again, we saw at IOTIC some work that we did in uh, social care, mm. people with early onset dementia, living with early onset dementia, where they were looking at could they voluntarily choose to share yeah. information from IoT sensors in the home yep. with their informal carers yep. um, to, to let them know things like, I have shut the door, I have turned off the lights, I have turned off the oven. Yeah. And as an outcome, what they actually saw was by sharing little pieces of information that they controlled and they trusted with people they trusted, yeah. the nature of convers- like human interactions mm-hmm. changed. Non-digital human interactions changed. So they had previously, uh, I remember one woman in particular uh, through an Anglia-Ruskin University study, um, her husband had become a carer. So their whole relationship and dynamic after a number of decades had shifted to, did you do these things? Have you done these things? Have you taken your meds? And so on. Right. Digitizing that allowed them to continue to have a human conversation of, did you watch Countdown? Did did Doris come over? How was your day? But that's a complete redefinition of the nature of the service that was mm-hmm. being provided and what it meant for good service to happen. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, a few, thi- a few things make that really important. You know, I think we, 
or, or sometimes I think of technology dividing us, but it's really exciting when you see it connecting us, when you see it enabling care and, and love and connection between families, right? That's, that's as it should be, you know, what, what a use. And, you know, we live in a world where families don't often stay and remain next door to one another anymore. You know, we're going all around the globe and um, the ability to work together to use technology as a way of sharing what's happening. How did your doctor appointment go? You know, were, did you get out of bed today? Should I be worried? You know, are, are you all of that I think is like gold, you know, when you think about how it can help connect us, how it can help resolve things like loneliness um, I'm really, I'm really, we worry about the machine age, but I think curated in the right way, it's going to be really exciting. It's going to make us even better and connect us even more, which I really like. And that, that curation part is, is key and, and yeah. kind of coming back to the trust bit, the thing that struck me about your example in, in New York city was that the neighbor called someone. Mm. So there is implicitly some aspect of tr like yeah. I can call and share this information about a neighbor. Yep. And I, A, know who I'm going to call. Yep. And B, I have faith and trust that if I call this person, they will do something. Like I'm not just yeah. ringing an answer phone machine somewhere and being like, oh, by the way, here's some information. And yeah. it all disappears into the ether. Yeah. How can we start to structure those kind of curations and engagements and, and moments yep. um, as we move forward? So I think I think part of it is the is the bringing together of data. It's the kind of aggregating into holistic view. Again, for for a, for a proportional and reasonable use, if I can use the kind of terminology that that we're meant to use, the kind of connecting of data to allow us to provide better outcomes. And I'll go back to your point. Like one of the things I've learned about data is it's not the bits and bytes. It's you know I would take a kind of supply chain view on on my own career. We have data. We move it across a digital and process ecosystem to achieve outcomes. But so many times we're to the left of that. We're on the data or we're on the processes when we should always be focused on the outcomes and whether we achieve them. And, and th you know, they need to be economic or human outcomes, probably both because they often go together. Um, so I think, I think bringing data together is important. I think to do that, you have to have a trust brand. So you have to have a trusted, auditable, transparent, accurate, controlled system that allows an organization or an individual to understand what's been shared, to give permission, to double check if they want, and to revoke permission, even if revoking permission is frustrating. You should be able to do that, right? So I think that's important. I mean, in a nerdy way to curation, I do think the idea of data governance and cleansing some of the data that we have that's atrophied is, is important. You know, I would go I would say this, you know, when we go to the library, if anybody thinks about this anymore or we learn about this in school, I don't know, the Dewey Decimal System in the card catalog, nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody really wants to learn about that. But if we don't have our, our data connected and organized in a kind of semantic way that we can find it, it's the equivalent of us walking into a library and diving into a pile of 100 books to find the paragraph we need. And none of us would want to do that. None of us would tolerate that. So these kind of investments in the plumbing, if I can call it that, how we govern and link data is as important to the kind of highways and byways that we build to share them in a kind of auditable, you know, safe, accurate, revocable way. We've got to make sure that that data, A, we can find it and B, that it's right to be able to share. Yeah, I, I, th I hadn't thought about the comparison with the geodecimal system, yeah. but, but it's perfect. And it's also... The thing that excites me, obviously, in, in our line of work, we do a lot of work with semantics and linked mm. and relational data yes. and so on. But 
one of the things that excites me is that while there is some work that needs to be done up front, mm -hmm. it's then a long tail of declining effort. I mean, yeah. so if you started with yeah. the, I don't know, 100,000 books in the Bodleian without a decimal system went, organize these. Yep. You'd have a nightmare on your head. You would. Now that you've got a hundred thousand, where does this one go, yeah. or how do I find this one? Yeah, is actually as close as you get to a no-brainer. That's right. And, yeah, 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 completely. Yeah, spot on. While we don't know what the future might hold, and there are lots of pathways we can take, where are the the pockets or the embers of excitement for you? Because you have such a broad yeah. remit yeah. Uh, in, in your role. So uh, there are a few things I'm excited about. So I am really interested in this. I'm like a dog with a bone on, on this data self-issue. I'm really curious about it because I feel like I'm, in a way, I'm in it. I'm skiing. I'm trying to ski and file my taxes at the same time. I'm trying <laughs> to think about what's going to happen. But, you know, I'm just, we're, we're, we're in it at the moment. So um, I'm really interested in the idea of personal data stores and data trusts and these kind of mechanisms where our data is held in a way that we can control that belongs to us. But again, it's a kind of brokering functionality. And I do wonder in health and care and maybe even in our, our move to interact with the private sector to commoditize some of our data sometimes, um, whether there will be the rise of, of each one of us will have a personal data store that, that we look at and curate and control. Um, I think that has a, amazingly powerful value in health and care integration, really integration across GPS, I could imagine in the private sector from a kind of customer journey, customer experience, there being really interesting use cases. And if we were at this if we were at the center of that alley, you and I, how different would that be than the way it happens today? And us being in control of kind of what happens and and who shares. So I'm really interested to see how that develops. Um, I mean everyone will will talk about AI, rightly so. I'm I'm really interested in how it will connect us. And I think our, I'm going to use it again, existential debate is how we keep ourselves at the center of this amazing tool that we're building. And uh, so I'll be really interested to see, you know, how that plays out. But I do, I am one that believes we'll always be at the center of two things when it comes to AI. Well, three. So one is what is value? That's our decision. That's a human decision. That will always be ours. Another is what's risk? What's the danger? We can never give that up, kind of abstain, particularly in some like really worrying cases, war fighting and things of that nature. But we just have to be really careful that we, we're always at the center of value and risk. And then the other thing is we're teachers, we're curators of this tool. So that's the other place that we're going to be. And, you know, a mentor of mine uh, in the firm, uh, Costi Pericos, who leads our, our AI function, says an incredible thing that I love. He's like, working with AI is like dealing with my teenagers. They're a hundred percent confident in what they tell me, but only seventy percent correct. <laughs> so, and 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 I give him full credit for kind of summing up why we will always be at the center and should always be at the center of this amazing tool and capability that's going to change everything for us. But it's not always going to be right, and it's going to be influenced by biases that we bring because we're imperfect. So, I think I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the data self and personal data stores. Definitely, probably those two things. Yes. Yeah, I love that the kind of the response to the existential is the intentionality of the individual. Yeah. Like, and that that seems to me the only way you can navigate 
I, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. But it's the only way you can navigate through it because the other option is to say it's an existential crisis. Like, okay, the entire world needs to sort something out right. in order for me to benefit from it. Yeah. And and I also love the three elements that you talk about because they're all dials. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. that you can control and determine. So yeah. on the value side, um, I've seen things like, uh, you know, we talked about anonymizing healthcare data, mm -hmm. but equally we saw stuff from uh, private organizations like Patients Like Me yeah. who did huge longitudinal uh pieces where people would upload their profile, what drugs they were taking, the environmental factors they were living in, you know, all the, all this really personal information. Yeah. Um, but because it's, it was predominantly in its early days, at least for people that were living with quite rare illnesses and diseases. And yeah. so you wanted to be part of a community where, you know, if you're one in 70 million who suffered this, you are yep. one person in the UK, but yep. there are five yep. in the US. Yep. And and so how do you guys come together and say, well, I took this drug and actually holistically right. it helped with this symptom, but limited this one. Yeah. So you, you can do the dial on, on the kind of where you see the value, whereas... Yep. For someone like me, the the value isn't necessarily there in terms mm -hmm. of putting my entire health healthcare out there. Yeah. But then also the risk. Yeah. I choose to live in this way and to to yep. take these risks, or yep. I don't, and I don't want it for those that I am responsible for. Yeah. So I I right now would have my data self or my data yeah. space that I controlled, but I'd also have them for my children yeah. uh, and have some control. And actually, I'm unwilling to tattoo your data self with these choices. Yeah. Like so, I'm I'm going to keep them. Away. And then finally, that teacher and curation aspect I find fascinating because I worry about the existential of AI hmm. that we don't recognize the 70% accuracy piece. Yeah. And we go, you're really confident in what you're saying. Yeah. Great. But if we don't curate and own, hmm. then we play that stuff back to other AIs. Yep. And we actually just quietly spin further and further from... We do. Objective reality yeah. <laughs> into some self-referential where all of the elements are yeah. right. You know, we, we've done the veracity and yeah. traceability that this model was trained on that model. Yeah. It's just that right at the start, it wasn't quite right. And as a result, we got into a self-reinforcing echo chamber, yeah. but without us at the center. And it just perpetuates your right. And, and you know, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on, on humankind and myself. I think we're amazing creatures and there's a there's a reason we became I think the dominant species on the planet and that's because of how we think in our cognitive processes and the biases both good and bad that we bring but we can inject those biases into you know the tools now that are all around us and they can self-perpetuate in a really worrying way um, but again I'm, I'm an optimist I, I just was at an event um, up at our office in Manchester where we had we're talking a lot about AI and what it might mean and um, one of the members of the audience asked a lot about bias and, and how do we how do we protect against that? Well, increasingly there's technology and tooling to help us. Um, we have specialists that think about bias and designing bias out of systems and detecting it. But um, someone who worked for me, it was a really humbling moment. She, you know, after we were done and I had kind of done my my big wig opining, if I can call it that. <laughs> she said, you know, the thing I'd just like to add is one of the most powerful ways we combat bias is by having diverse teams. And that's just right back to human beings at the center. Let's, let's have diverse teams with people that think differently, that can ask different questions of ourselves and of our technology. And that'll be one of the things that'll just about keep us right. And that's so lovely because for me, that comes back to that connectivity piece. Yeah. Like they're really in a world where we can connect across boundaries, across borders, across countries, across yep. societies. 
you aren't forced to say, well, these are the people I have in the room with me and therefore these are the people that I can work with. There is no limitation on bringing in diverse voices or, 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 Not at all. or conversations or viewpoints. Yeah, and then you, you, don't, you don't realize myself. You, I'm, I'm with a, a group of people that we've trained together, you know, we deliver together, and we don't realize that in some cases we largely think alike. And that's mostly good. That's mostly great, right? Until it isn't. So having that diversity of moral attitude, faith, life experience, bring it all on because there have been a few occasions in my professional and work life when I might not have loved it in the moment, but boy, have I needed the diversity. Yeah. So I do find it amazing that one can have these moments where you see the world completely differently. Yeah. And, And not necessarily a kind of, oh, I thought this was wrong, but just I didn't realize it was an option. Yeah. I, I remember very clearly we did a training exercise many years ago in a previous life. Um, and the, the question asked was, you are an agency, you've won two tickets yeah. to Australia from the UK for this all-star holiday because of what you've done to pick up an award. Yeah. Who do you send? Yeah. And so lots of debate amongst the team on, like, well, we send the CEO and the person <laughs> responsible for the work, you know, all this kind of conversation. Another team came back and were like, are we allowed to exchange the tickets? Right. Like, can we take two first class tickets and change them into six economy class tickets? Nice. And it was like, Jesus, it didn't even occur yeah. to me to question the parameters of the question. Yeah. And they were like, you yeah, know, we've worked out this whole thing where basically <laughs> half the team is allowed to go on the basis that we just do it all on the cheap. And how much better is that? Yeah. Right? And yeah. It was like, what a fantastic redrawing of the question. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I, I like you, am very hopeful. Yeah. And I'm most hopeful because I see positives in all things. You know, as mm-hmm. we start to challenge, we've seen over the past couple of decades, the challenging of the way things are done. Yep. And what you know, in the UK, we had that whole moment where we were saying we don't want experts anymore. And, yes. You know, and, and, yep. and a challenging of pieces and establishment. But equally, that then meant that there's a, a recentering on, well, how do I experience the world? Where are the... obvious challenges for you that we'll need to overcome? Or are there obvious challenges for you that we'll we'll need to address? Yeah, I think there are a few. I mean, I think one, I I think this is probably every generation or every couple generations, but skills is definitely one of them. You know, I I think, what should my children study (laughs) so that they can have good jobs and, you know, to be relevant. And I think, um, you know, we we can see with the computational power of some of the tools that we're developing, that there will be certain jobs that, that we used to do that we're not going to be able to compete, if I can say it that way. But again, back to my optimism, that's great because a lot of times these are heavily rule-based, sometimes redundant tasks. And I think most of us at some point in our career have said, why am I having to do this thing again <laughs> and again when I'd rather be doing this more meaningful thing? Whatever it is that you love and motivates you, you know, in the world of health and care, it's actually seeing human beings and treating patients, right? You know, if you said to a GP, if we took away some of your paperwork and some of these tasks that you have to do and you could see four more patients, I'm not a GP, but I bet a lot of them would take your hand off, right? So I'm, I'm really excited about kind of what will happen there. But I, but I do think STEM skills, you know, statistics, um, but softer skills around ethics, how to calculate value, going back to where we'll always be. Um, you know, I think you see some rising careers in the world of AI. You have prompt engineers now, don't you, that curate, that teach. So I think, I think you know, definitely the world of skills and how do we rebrand ourselves 
you know, take skills that we have and move them, you know, to a place that's maybe more meaningful, even if it's not quite what we were doing before. So I think that's one. Um, I, I think the interplay between like regulation, paternalism and autonomy, I mean, that probably plays out in every society, but this idea of um, what can be done to me and where, where, will, where will I be able to make my choices, I think is, you know, is going to play out again in terms of, you know, as a thought exercise, we, we pay salary revenue to governments to provide services. Um, you know, some could argue, I'm not, I'm not one that does, but that information could be a kind of tax, particularly if our information could be used to improve health outcomes, right? So in the north of England where I live, um, the health outcomes are much poorer. Men die much earlier. Comorbidities, it's a hard word, um, are much higher. And you just, you just like to fix that. And if you could in the world of data, as long as people were protected in terms of being as anonymized as they can, why, why shouldn't you? That would be the argument. Yeah. But the flip side is because I don't want to because it's my data. And, and I think um, in the West, that's one for the ages. And we will, we will always be in the churn of that. And I think the churn of that is good because that represents a choice between two, two values that are right. So I think, I think seeing how that plays out. But again, that maybe the rise of technology and educating us to be more at the center of our data selves will make that a much better process, I think, in terms of outcomes and value for all of us. So maybe those two things, Ali? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I think for me that is entirely resonant. If we can help with the skills and the education to, yeah. to ask the right questions, but also demand the transparency yeah. of those tensions. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I think we've lost in discourse generally yeah. is, is the kind of transparency of the underlying. I mean, when I, when I was growing up, it was a kind of, you might have two schools of thought. I'd rather a hundred people went free yeah. in order that we don't, uh, sorry, a hundred guilty people go free so that we don't jail an innocent. Yeah. Or I'd rather jail a hundred people that are innocent yeah. because so that one guilty person doesn't go free. And you're like, yeah. neither is right or wrong, but they're two ends of a spectrum. And if we can be transparent about where we sit ideologically, yeah. yep. then we can have rational debate between the two sides. Yeah. If you just say, well, this is, it's either A or B, yeah. then all the bit in the middle gets lost in between. And if, if you can center yourself and then transparently have the skills yeah. to understand the nature, is it 70%, is it 90%, is it 50%, and what does that difference in percentage mean? Yep then you can have a completely different conversation about the risk, value, yep. and, and education of what's, of what's needed. I agree. I mean, there's maybe a third one, um, and that's innovation and the pace of innovation. So I think a lot of people worry about are we moving fast enough? And again, in terms of two value choices, the desire to innovate, the desire to get value, but also the desire to regulate what we do. So whether that's from an information perception perspective or the regulation of medical devices, when, when you get into the kind of innovation conversation, you can easily bog down in over-regulation yeah. and you can actually not achieve the wonderful outcome that you're trying to achieve. Equally, you know, this is why choices between two worthy values are so hard. If we don't regulate well, we could accidentally put something out in the market that's acting as a medical device that's not regulated and not tested well enough. And I certainly don't want that. Um, so I think the proportionality between those two choices for global societies is going to be really interesting. Um, and I think in the West, we will, we probably have more, just my own experience, more uh, 
churn between those two values um, than than potentially some some other societies where they might just want to innovate. Yep. And um, you know, indelicately, if you if you if you break a few eggs to get to the omelet, that's okay. You know, and that's fine as long as you're not one of those eggs, right? Which is where, which is where we are in the West. Yeah. Well, Eric, this is this has been fascinating. I I always like to end on a kind of, if there's a takeaway for people, is there anything that you would love to see either individuals, bang in the theme, or society yeah. at general, yeah. do or consider or debate? Yeah. What would it be? I think for me, it, it, you know, it'll not surprise people that have been listening. It's 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 learn to look after and love your data self. You know, it it, it exists. Um, it is out there. It is operating for you, and it can be used against you. So I think just developing and educating yourself on you know what is happening with yourself in terms of data, you know what it means, you know, and it can be hard when you see your kind of thirty thousandth, you know. Can we use cookies or not use cookies? Right, it can be exhausting. Right, I do get that, but but just taking some responsibility for that other part of yourself, I think, will make a huge difference um, for individuals and society. So I would love to see us all wake up to the possibility of that, and a little bit to the danger, but mostly the possibility as an optimist. Yeah, fantastic, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much to Eric Applewhite, director at Deloitte, for his fascinating take on the data self and the role of trust and the centering of the individual in our future technology landscape. That concludes today's episode. Huge thanks to Snaffle Podcast for producing today's episode, Kennington Studios for hosting us, and you for listening. Thanks very much. 